And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest John Castle on the Coot Street Podcast! And w- welcome, welcome, John, and uh, and congratulations on, on the best of the best short fiction of John Kessel, The Dark Ride and Other Stories, which is one of these gorgeous subterranean press books that everybody needs to buy before they disappear because there aren't that many of them. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm very happy with the book. I'm, I'm happy to be talking with you guys about it. Uh, uh, yeah, the book, uh, you know, uh, it's one of those collector's things. So it weighs about 30 pounds and it's on good paper and sewn bindings and the tipped in signature sheets and author notes. It has all those little bells and whistles that are pretty cool. Do you like doing author notes for your stories? There are two schools of thought on this. There are writers who think, no, the stories must speak for themselves. And there are mm-hmm. writers who like to give us tips. And I love reading writers' notes on stories myself. I've always uh, liked authors' notes. I don't think I've done them on any. Well, I did them on this Bain collection that I did that no longer exists. And uh, so I, I, um, and I borrowed some of the stuff I had there, although I rewrote it. And then I wrote notes for other stories that were not in that. So, uh, uh, but no, I, I like uh, I like author notes. It is a sort of sign of genre work, isn't it? I think mainstream writers don't ever do this kind of shit. You know? <laughs> That's an interesting point. I love that. Well, I mean, it, 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 I think it's part of this idea that there's a form for the short story collection as opposed to the the, the, the novel or the collect or the anthology. That the short story collection has an introduction, it has notes, it has all these other kind of things. If it's a not a, not a career retrospective. Maybe it's got an original new story in it as well. That's the kind of frame. And when in the genre you get a short story collection that is none of those things, they feel kind of naked, as though they're sort of like under delivered right. almost. Whereas this right. is like yeah. But if you see a Jonathan Friends and collection, well, I actually don't know if he's ever done a story collection. But you know, people like that, um, they 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 don't tend to have any apparatus, no introductions, no notes. Uh, you know, um, um, George Saunders, wonderful writer. Uh, doesn't doesn't do any of that stuff in his so uh, uh, and I, I don't know it, it's just I think a different culture is I think it is too I think it's a community thing that uh, that science fiction writers feel a kind of connection to their readers that maybe other writers don't in addition to which and this is not the case at all with the dark ride but there are some anthologies some collections I should uh, I'm thinking actually of Harlan Ellison in which frequently the notes are more inter- entertaining than the stories. And I'm afraid that that was true of Harlan for me after certainly after a while. Uh, uh, Harlan's interesting in that he was one of my complete. I mean, he's a real hero of mine when I was a young man, and then very much not so. <laughs> as I got yeah. Uh, so. Well, speaking of, of who you were reading as a young man, uh, one of the things that I noticed uh, in, in in your short fiction and in your long fiction, because we can certainly talk about Pride and Prometheus both as story and novel, is that you're on the spectrum of, that's not the right word to use in these, this day and age, I suppose, a spectrum yeah. between classical literature and genre literature. Because, I mean, Jane Austen and, and, and Mary Shelley and uh, Herman Melville, people like this, they, they're, they're one set of influences. And as you mentioned, there's Harlan Ellison. And who else from the science fiction end of the spectrum? Zelazny? Well, uh, I was, I, you know, Zelazny, I read when he first, was in FNSF, but he, for some reason I never completely connected with. Him. But I was very much a fan of Delaney's early short okay. fiction, and then of the classic writers. I mean, I huge Theodore Sturgeon fan, uh, very much a fan of Damon Knight, 
uh, Alfred Bester, uh, gosh, uh, uh, of writers that, you know, from the 50s and 60s, Edgar Pangborn, uh, um, gosh, uh, I, uh, Phil K. Dick. Uh, so, so I was reading all those folks and, uh, I read a lot of short stories. I liked Avram Davidson. Uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I write like all any of those guys or all of them later, a little later, I was, uh, completely smitten with, uh, Thomas Dish and Gene Wolfe. Uh, and, and of course, uh, Ursula Le Guin, Kate Wilhelm, wonderful short story writer, uh, and, uh, Joanna Russ. So they all, they all were very, uh, important to me, uh. You, you've been writing short stories since the end of the well, publishing short stories since the end of the seventies, and have you know a, a long and and storied bibliography. How did you approach the task of assembling the Dark Ride? Especially, I guess you'd had a kind of dry run doing that uh, previous uh, retrospective that you were ta- you mentioned, uh, the Collected Kessel. There was I think it was mainly a digitally only uh, volume. H- how was it approaching this as opposed to that? How do you winnow everything down? Well, it was kind of interesting to do. And, and uh, you know, it was difficult at some points. Uh, um, I, I was told I had certain parameters. I was told I had uh, 200,000 words max. And, uh-huh. and that uh, um, Bill Schaefer at Subterranean said he really wanted some stories from every phase of my career. So that meant I had to have some stories from basically the first 15 years. If I think about it as a 40 year retrospective from 1980 to 2020 or, or whatever, uh, he wanted some stories from the eighties. And, uh, and, you know, I, I tended to like the later stuff a little more than I liked my early stuff. And so uh, I had to make some choices there. Uh, I left out, uh, at least one story that I would have liked to have had in there that, uh, that in favor of earlier work, Although the earlier work, as I went back and read it, actually, um, what um, I like, I like that young guy. Okay, he's not a good <laughs> guy, but he, he, you know, he's got some talent. Uh, he's he's ambitious. He's a little bit too dazzled by literature, uh, and uh, uh, <laughs> that's the part you know, I liked. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> it too. Uh, but uh, you know, he needed to calm down a little bit. I thought. Uh, um, but at any rate, so so I had to pick stories from every phase of of the career, and then I also had to, I mean, in, from my mind, I wanted to have a, a variety of lengths. Sure. One, one thing in doing this, it hit me how many long stories I've written. I uh, my comfort zone for stories is really uh, uh, in the eight thousand to twelve thousand word zone. Okay, I wrote yeah. a lot of stories at that length. It seems to me. You know, as someone said, you can't kick a, a dog around proper in 4,000 words, okay? <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I really want those extra words. And, I, and, and so I have quite a few stories in there that qualify in the science fiction world as novelettes and novellas. Uh, so that reduced the number of stories I could as well. Yeah. Uh, I also wanted to have a mix of male versus female viewpoint characters and first versus third person and <laughs> yeah. stories that are based on uh, have a historical setting versus stories that are set in the present or the future, science fiction versus what, slipstream. I wanted to balance all that stuff out. But th- this actually touches on something that's really interesting with these kind of books. It's not, the stories in the book are not arrayed in simple chronological order. 
I mean, years ago, for example, when North Atlantic did the collected sturgeon, it's frankly the worst early stories onto the most accomplished later stories. And, you know, whilst there's that sort of academic interest of seeing him evolve as a writer, it's maybe not the best reading experience. That's right. very much not the approach you've taken with this, is it? I mean, this looks no, like it's been I, composed to read. Right. I, I spent a lot of time actually, uh, you know, trying to figure out the order of the stories that I that I want. And Bill pretty much gave me my head when it came to that. Uh, yeah. I, I was able to do what I wanted. And so, so I, I you know, I ended up starting with uh, one of the oldest, the, the oldest in terms of, of print uh, appearance, uh, uh, which is uh, not responsible park and lock it in, which I hadn't read in so many years. And I was quite, I, and I was pleased with it. Actually, I, yeah. I thought, well, this is, you know, this is, I remember writing it and thinking, this is a story where I've, I've broken through to do something better than the, the other stuff. If you look at the stories I published before that one, which that one came out in 1980, um, I would not, in fact, I don't know that I've collected more than maybe one of them. They they basically have appeared from human ken, and that's a good thing. Uh, yeah. uh, they they were uh, they were apprentice work. Well, I don't know. One of the things that I, I'd never read um, uh, Park and Lockett before the, this collection, and and I was impressed at how Ballardian it seemed. I mean, it's just, yeah. it, it, in a way, it's it, it, people who live their entire lives on superhighways, and. I immediately thought of things like, uh, well, that trilogy of, 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 of ballads, part of which takes place in, what's the, it's High Rise and the one that takes place. Concrete in, Island. Concrete Island, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And so, so it's read to me very much like a, a new wave kind of story. Well, I was, uh, I was dazzled by the new wave. And uh, I, you know, I start, grew up reading science fiction and uh, had all the usual loves, Heinlein and Asimov and Clark and all that. But then when, when I was a, uh, you know, I was born in 1950. So when I was in my teens, late teens and early 20s, that's when the new wave hit. And I was very much dazzled by the writers who were doing that stuff, uh, the Brits and the Americans. And uh, also the influx of women writers that came in at the time of feminist uh, writers. And that that was uh, very formative uh, for me. You know, I don't know if I ended up writing exactly like any of those people. I know at, at one point I was consciously trying to be Thomas Dish. OK, and a couple a couple times I tried to be Gene Wolfe, but I don't know anyone could be Gene Wolfe. So uh, <laughs> um, uh, but but uh, and Kate Wilhelm really uh I was, I was, you know, influenced by a lot of those people, but uh, you know how it is, is when you, no matter how you, you uh, comb your hair or, you know, wear your clothes, you still look like you, uh, you can't, and that's a good thing. You know, you, you are who you are. Uh, and, and, and frankly, I don't think I ever really got to be very good until I invested in my own particular things. You know, well, one uh, of the, you and I have a, famous teacher in common, of course, and uh, Jim Gunn at Kansas. And I think you were maybe his first important fiction writing. I like to think of myself as his first critic, but he's, he's really uh, an old-fashioned guy when it comes to what, what you're reading. So the kind of fiction you were reading, I can... On the other hand, I know from what you and, and others have told me is that he, technically he was always a very good reader. Did he let you get away with what you were writing back then? Or did he say, why, don't, yeah. why doesn't it look... We butted heads all the time. Okay, and I loved Jim. Okay, and and he was very, uh, in terms of the the uh, uh, you know technical uh, understanding of science fiction, also the uh, the 
steeped in the history, although I'd read all that stuff too. So it wasn't like I was ignorant of it. But, uh, you know, he worshipped at the, the shrine of Campbell and H.L. Gold. Uh, and I, I um, read all that stuff and I, was, I, I liked a lot of it, but I, uh, I was writing different things. And so um, he made me rewrite a lot. And, uh, but he did also, he never really forced me to write Jim Gunn's story. Okay. And that, I think, uh, you know, that was good. <laughs> uh, I, I think he let me find my own way. Okay. And uh, he may have been skeptical of what I was doing, but he wasn't going to, you know, force me to do something that, that wasn't what I could do. So. Looking back through the stories, I mean, because obviously you have obviously read them chronologically looking back at them. I mean, is there a point where you feel like you hit your voice with these? Well, um, you know, the first story, I, I, I'm not the two stories I wrote in a row, actually, which probably is not evident in the book, is that I wrote Not Responsible Park and Lockett, I think it was in 1979. And then I wrote um, Another Orphan in 1980. Those stories were written one after another. And and so what I was doing there, one, I think of Not Responsible as kind of Phil Dickian story in a way. Uh, uh, and, and, and then... Um, Another orphan was me indulging my my literary uh, vampirism, uh, and and I've done that repeatedly. In fact, I sort of worried a little bit at one point that I do too much of that stuff, and then I realized, well, you know, so sue me, okay? <laughs> I, <laughs> it's what you do. Uh, yeah, that's what I do, and if you don't like it, that's perfectly fine. And I hope that the stories, uh, I hope it's my intention always to bring something of my own. To the stories and also to have the stories in some ways be a kind of critique of the originals, okay, or commentary on them. Uh, I don't think I, I, I um, uh, ever wrote one that didn't have some sort of angle on the, uh, the initial writer uh, that, that I hope caused you to think about them in a way you might not have thought about them before. Uh, that to me is, uh, is what you have to do. The, does this affect your attitude toward, toward the readership? Because, I mean, another orphan, for example, you're, it's it's a commodities broker who finds himself on board the Pequod with Captain Ahab. So he, a modern character gets thrust into Moby Dick. So on the one hand, you've got a literary audience who knows Moby Dick inside and out. You've got your traditional genre audience, which consists of a lot of people who have pretended to have read Moby Dick and maybe seen the movie. Uh, so when you're and, and, and you you do a very interesting thing, it seems to me technically, by keeping Ahab mostly off screen. So you're not trying to outdo Melville. Uh, but what was the reception? I mean, you got a nebula for that, didn't you? I did. I did. I was uh, flabbergasted. I had a hard time selling that story. It got rejected uh, at all the science fiction markets I normally sent them to until I sent it to a fantasy and science fiction. And they, Ed Furman, he had bought three of my stories already. And I, I remember in the letter I sent him, I, I wrote, uh, you know, here, Ed, this is a, a novella about Moby Dick. You know, I don't know if this is what you want, but I, uh, uh, it's really something I'm trying to do. And it's as good as I can write. And I, uh, if you don't buy it, I, uh, I'm going to put it in the drawer and it's going to go away for a long time. And, <laughs> and, and, and he bought it. Okay. And he, he, he said in his note to me that, uh, you know, he wasn't doing me charity. Uh, he was, he, 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 really liked and he was glad to have it. Uh, but you know, that, that I was close to saying, oh, no, this one's got to go away for a while. Uh, so I was 
very glad. And when I got nominated for the Nebula Award, I was very surprised. And when it won, I was completely flabbergasted. It was my first nomination. And uh, then I was to be nominated another nine times before I won again. And of course, both of the stories I won for are based on his classic works of literature, uh, Jane Austen and Herman Melville. Mm. And I wonder sometimes whether I might have gotten some mileage out of the fact, oh, well, this guy, you know, it's about Moby Dick, so it's serious and therefore it deserves it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't know, you know if that was a factor at all. Did winning the Nebula for another orf- orphan change how you were feeling about what you were writing? Because that kind of sort of external validation can at times prove to be very important. It uh, actually was very important in the sense that it, 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 it made me feel, oh my God, I, I guess I'm, you know, what I'm doing here might be okay. But it also uh, discombobulated me. And one of the things I thought I had to do at that point was to write a novel. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I always said, okay, I better write a novel. And I started, and I didn't have a novel to write. And so I, I, I really wasted some time there. Uh, and then I also was, was, it's kind of silly, but I, you know, I worried what people would think of my next story, you know, mm-hmm. would it be considered to be, I mean, is this guy to be a, a one shot wonder, you know, who disappears a lot of trace science fiction's full of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, so I worried about that, but I was a young guy and well, I was in my thirties early thirties. And I, I, uh, I, you know, I hadn't really felt very established as a writer. And um, that certainly did bring some visibility to me that I didn't have before. But then the other thing about a Nebula Award is people don't even remember who won them a year later. So uh, that, that's, uh, that was okay too. You know, I, I, I did that one. Actually, I want to say one thing about uh, another orphan that I did not remember when I wrote it, but um I, one of my favorite, favorite books that I had ever, uh, I read it repeat many cut times, was The Incomplete Enchanter by L. Sprague de Camp and Fletcher Pratt, which is about a psychologist from Ohio who translates himself into the world of Norse mythology or the fairy queen in the first book. Okay, so this was, I mean, I was plagiarizing de Camp and Pratt without knowing it. Okay, mm-hmm. in writing the story. In other words, I, I was not the first genre writer to decide they were going to, you know, uh, uh, throw a modern character into the middle of of uh, a classic work of literature. Um, so well, they, they were also pioneers in writing comic science fiction, uh, right? Which is something else you've done. And I not made this connection until you mentioned it, but I wonder if if, if that character from uh, DeCamp and Pratt has anything to do with your time traveling guy who goes back to Hollywood of Preston Sturgis and Marilyn Monroe. It sounds like the same kind of situation, only in a screwball comedy kind of context. Well, I hadn't really uh, thought about um, DeCamp and Pratt with regard to those stories. I'm trying to think of where I came from that originally. Um, I certainly am a huge uh, old movie fan. Okay, so there's that. Uh, and all, and the, all the stories of uh, various actors and directors in Hollywood are, I think, are fascinating. And um, and then the, then I thought about this idea of the people from the future exploiting the people from the past. Uh, if, if they have this uh, uh, form of time travel, which allows them to go back and change things or kidnap people or persuade them to come back to the future, uh, and it has no effect on their own history does not change the history, the future, then uh, that would make the past uh, kind of playground for time travelers where they could, they could 
commit enormities. And so that kind of black humor has uh, always appealed to me. Okay. And I, I thought, well, this would be an opportunity both for a kind of critique of colonialism and, uh, and a comedy at the same time, which uh, uh, I thought was kind of cool. And that, that mostly led to my novel, Corrupting Dr. Nice. But those three stories are sort of children of that novel. Uh, the character from the stories, Detlef Gruber, is also in the novel as a, as a secondary character in the background. So, uh, so that whole universe of these time travel stories I had worked out, uh, and I, you know, this is all written between maybe 94 and 2002, something like that. The novel came out in 97. Um, and actually I, I had ideas for several other Gruber stories, but I never wrote them. Uh, I don't know if I ever will. Uh, you know how it is, uh, a story, I, I, I'm, I think of myself primarily, or at least uh, initially as a short story writer. And, and although I think I got to be a decent novelist. Uh, and so I had a lot of uh, short story writers have lots of ideas sitting around that never make it. Um, you know, I had a conversation about 10 years ago with Stan Robinson, who writes the very interesting introduction to the dark ride. Um, and he meant he, he described the eighties as a terrible time for science fiction and how he had such an awful time during it. But I'm curious how you feel Looking back, because you, you mean you've been influenced by the new wave. Science fiction has a sort of the new wave trickles through into you know, the mid seventies, then then science fiction goes through some a transformation with a lot of bestsellery kind of stuff coming out, and then you get into the eighties, which are I, I've always looked at a very creative sort of time. How did you feel fitting into that as part of the science fiction scene, particularly as the decade goes on? Because I mean, you have one novel published, and you've just obviously finished your first solo novel at the end of the eighties. You've won a nebula at the very beginning of the 80s. You've got cyberpunk and everything else going on in the background. How did you feel as part of the field at that time? And how did you feel about fitting into that kind of world? I, I, I thought that was, uh, that was a form, I guess, in some ways, a formative decade of my really writing career. I, I thought the 80s were a very good time to break in for someone like me. Mm. And, uh, you know, my cohort of writers. I think was one of the strongest to come into the genre in the history of the genre. So people like me and Jim Kelly and Stan Robinson and Nancy Kress and, and uh, uh, Pat Murphy and, and then the, the cyberpunks, Bruce Sterling and William Gibson and Lou Shiner, uh, uh, Karen Joy Fowler. Uh, um, you know, th this was a remarkable time, I think for, for new voices in the field. And, and they were, uh, all of, I think most of them had some, you know, they were influenced by the new wave, but they also were were um, uh, trying to, to you know work within the genre uh, as it as it had come to them and maybe push the edges of it. Uh, so yeah. I remember it being a, a, a quite a exciting time, and the whole, I mean, the whole cyberpunk humanist thing seemed like a big deal at the time, and uh, I I always felt like it was unfortunate that. Uh, for instance, you know, uh, Bruce and Lou were basically, at that point anyway, uh, talking down the work of Kim Stanley Robinson and Connie Willis. Okay. And yeah, as if yeah. somehow they were, you know, they were reactionaries who were, you know, just, you know, uh, and, and, and I felt that that was completely uncalled for because I thought these writers actually had much more in common than they had uh, in, in, uh, differences. In fact, when I started the Sycamore Hill workshop, one of the things I wanted to do was to get these people from the opposite sides or different places in the same room together 
with their manuscripts to talk to each other. And I, I was I was very idealistic. I thought that if they did that, they would see, you know, each other's humanity and their also their intellect and their and they would stretch their understanding of what can and couldn't be done. And, you know, and for some people that absolutely worked. And for some people, it was complete disaster. OK. <laughs> and, and who, they could not get past their own uh, visions of things. And. That was that was hard, you know. Uh, I won't. I'm not going to name it. You've got to think of yourself in terms of of somebody who lived through periods of science fiction history now, and and you're still writing. But the, there was a the, the term that I, I don't know if it's completely was Fiona Callahan's term, but the term the savage humanists sort of made your group look like a reaction against cyberpunk, which itself was a reaction against the '70s, and there's this kind of attempt to construct a dialectic. But when I was looking back at the actual, at some of Bruce Sterling's best stories are extremely humanistic stories. Um, and and a lot I of- I feel like I had some hand in that happening to Bruce. Because oh, I God. brought him and put him in the room with Karen Fowler. And I remember him saying after the first time we did a workshop with Karen, and I didn't know Karen at that point either. Uh, he said, you know, I cannot, basically he said, I cannot dismiss Karen Fowler. Okay, I cannot pretend that she's not smart or a good writer, well-read, you know, hard-headed, uh, none, none of those things. And so I've got to somehow deal with her. Okay, <laughs> and uh, and I think that was a good thing for him. Okay, it made him do things he would not otherwise have written. I, I don't know if he would say that. That that's my perception of of the circumstances. One of the things that was was happening to Bruce in the late '80s was this sort of you know, I mean, Bruce's, you know, his nickname was Chairman Bruce, right? And you think of him with his little red book and his dictate, dic, dictums about dictums, how you're yeah, supposed the, to do The chief truth and editorials. And, uh, and I don't know that, uh, you know, and he still is uh, uh, someone who is, but we're all strong in our opinions. I, 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 I went into this huge correspondence with Bruce over a period of like five years. Were we sending six page typewritten letters to each other? All about this stuff, long debates and arguments and jokes, and uh, we became really good friends actually as a result of this. And um, those letters are all in the uh, University of Kansas uh, Spencer Library now. Uh, someone probably should look at them at some point, or maybe something. I don't know, but but uh, it was really very important to me too. I I found myself because by by the in the early eighties, I was thinking. You know, I'm not sure I'm a science fiction writer. I'm going to be a kind of borderline. I'm going to be, you know, there weren't really a lot of writers doing that then. But I was trying, I was thinking I could be Emily St. John Mandel in 1983. Okay. Okay. And, uh, or George Saunders in 1983. And then the whole cyberpunk thing happened and I got involved thinking about that. And I thought, no, I'm really a science fiction writer and I'm going to commit to the genre. And so there was a path not taken there. Like I probably would have died in the chasm between the genre and the mainstream that existed at that time. Uh, uh, some, some of the stories from, from around, I think it's around that period, the story which I, I think I've said this before and you probably know that I've always thought of as the kind of quintessential John Kessel story is the pure product, which takes its title from William and Carlos Williams, talk, talk, talk about the mainstream. And uh, looking at that again, I'd not read it again until uh, looking at The Dark Ride, I was thinking, you know, that, that, that would have been very much a genre story then. It's 
it's loose enough in terms of its literary adaptation, literary aspirations that, yeah, that, that's close to something that could have been in a mainstream magazine in the last 10 years, but not 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, I, could have been I was junctions, let's say. Yeah, I, well, uh, you know, the story in the, that's in the collection, actually, that I would point to from that era is uh, The Lecturer, which well, I wrote in 1984. And uh, that one is completely a, it's a Kafka story. Okay. And, 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 uh, or it's a Kafkaesque story. And I, I, there, there's no genre thing in there at all. And, and I, um, you know, I, I might've gone more in that direction and written more of those stories. I still did write more of those sorts of stories, but not a whole lot of them. Uh, So that, that's, that's a a kind of thing. Now, the other thing is that if I had sent that, and actually, I think I may have sent that story to the New Yorker and got it rejected. Okay. I was sending stories to the New Yorker back then and getting them bounced uh, without even a comment. You know, they would just come with us. So, so I was trying to do that, but it, it really wasn't, probably wasn't a good way. To, uh, it wasn't a path that really was very, I don't know if I would have written as much or as, or as interesting stuff if I had tried to do that. Okay. Um, I, I, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I remember going to an armadillo con in, maybe it's 86 or 87. And a lot of us writers were there, you know, Jim Blaylock and Powers too. I, I, you can name, there's a dozen or 20, a score of writers that, that I thought of them as, as literarily ambitious, ambitious, smart, well-read, uh, you know, uh, uh, writers that, that are, hover, are, are trying to reshape the genre. And uh, I, 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 there were a lot of us there that weekend. And I remember feeling like, okay, well, I'm pretty comfortable with this. I like these people. Okay, I don't like them all, but, <laughs> well, but I like them. No, and, and, I, and, and even the ones that I you know wouldn't want to hang out with, I their fiction is interesting and yeah. it's ambitious and it's uh, not like everything else I've read. And so, uh, this is a good place literarily to be at this time. You know, Stan talks a little bit about that in the introduction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, where he talks about how these writers came in in this, the last part of the 20th century who were sort of using science fiction to look at other things out, outside of the genre. And uh, I felt like I was part of that. You're, yeah, and, and I think something else we ought to mention sometime during this podcast is I think you and, and Jim Kelly kind of explored that idea in that series of anthologies you did, which I found endlessly fascinating, and one of which was, I think, titled Kafka-esque. Um, yes. Where you're l- just looking at stories that are n- not quite one thing and not quite another. And I, I kind of missed those anthologies, by the way. I thought they were terrific. I um, very much enjoyed doing them with Jim. They weren't very financially rewarding. <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, they did all right. They they they, they, they earned out most of them and, and made some royalties. Uh, and they, um, Jim and I, I think, thought of them as ways of ways of discussing things, thinking about things. I don't know if we had a program particularly, uh, you know, we were just saying, okay, well, what's slipstream and what kind of good stories can we put together here? Stories that you might not have seen in the same book together unless we did it. Uh, And what argument can we make? And sometimes we would argue between each other about what should be and shouldn't be in these books. Uh, It was fun to do that. Yeah, 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 that's what's fun about the books is I can see you and Jim arguing about the contents as I'm reading. Yeah, yeah. and some of the books are like fifty-fifty books, like Slipstream fifty-fifty book. But uh, you know, Rewired the uh, the post fiber punk book would probably be like seventy thirty Jim over me. 
And the Kafka book was like 70, 30, me over Jim. And so, so uh, we were both involved in all of that stuff, but we, uh, you know, some of us, one of us, the other of us might be a little more engaged with, uh, with one topic or another. Sure. Looking back, you, know, you mentioned that you know, you've had this point where you've decided to commit to science fiction. I think you've touched on some of the points, but was there a particular thing that made you think science fiction was the thing to do? Well, I'd always loved it. And you can do things in science fiction that, frankly, that mainstream writers dabbling in it don't do. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I come from the genre. So, you know, I tend to cross my T's and dot my I's science fictionally in a way that Emily St. John Mandel doesn't, okay, or, or uh, any number of others. They, they, they don't, you know, I've got sort of a little bit of an analog writer inside of me, okay, in that, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if, if a spaceship is, is accelerating at 1G and someone goes outside of the spaceship for a spacewalk, they're not floating, okay? <laughs> They're being dragged by a, a table at, at 1G, all right? And so, so uh, you know, if someone does that in a story, I, uh, I get real antsy. And so, yeah. so uh, even though I don't really write hard science fiction much, uh, I, I, I care about that stuff. So I felt like, oh, well, I belong in the, in the genre in that regard. Well, you, and then you, also, yeah, go ahead. You, po- you posted something on Facebook about, I guess you'd read... Uh, sea of Tranquility, the second Emily John, uh, St. John Mandel novel. And yeah. you described yourself, you said something like, I guess I'm a dinosaur after all, um, because of the fact, I'm sure it's the same thing I noticed, that she doesn't pay any attention to her moon colony being credible at all. Uh, Not I enough. myself it found well it. Iowa, you know, it, it, that's, you know. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but um, I, I, have, I have a theory about that, which we should talk about sometime over drinks, but it's that when you when you use time travel in a science fiction story, you you know you're using it metaphorically. You know it's not going to happen. There's not so so essentially, you're taking one of the grand themes of science fiction and admitting that it's a metaphor. When you have somebody from the margins coming in, uh, they don't distinguish between something like time travel as a metaphor and something like space travel, which isn't a metaphor. It's all metaphor from their perspective. And so it is I, think, all, all, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so to some extent, she it wasn't that she was ignorant. It's that she just didn't care. She um, didn't care. Right. And I think I said that in my post is that that's what made me feel like a dinosaur is that I care about things that no one else cares about or few people care about anymore. And and so uh, to complain about that stuff is kind of silly. And so I, I and I liked Sea of Tranquility in some ways, uh, 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 some parts of it quite a bit. But, uh, you know, I did have a trouble with uh, the lunar stuff because uh, it is all metaphor for her. It's not not uh, it's not real. And frankly, even though time travel is not is impossible, fundamentally, uh, you can treat it as if it's just a metaphor or you can actually think about, you know, the logical uh, issues that arise in time. And I and I'm for the second uh, mode. I You know, I don't uh, you know, the time traveler's wife to me is a. Uh, you know, when you have all these time travel stories where people just sort of born being able to time travel, it's like, okay. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, 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 have we always had these people? Why haven't we heard about them before? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that, that doesn't work. But I mean, I was uh, speaking of uh, time travel in mainstream. I was, I, I read Emma Straub's novel. Uh, Peter Straub's daughter has now got a bestseller with this time tomorrow, which has time travel in it. And it's exactly the same kind of time travel that you get in Octavia Butler's Kindred or in a movie like Peggy Sue Got Married. 
She just wakes up one morning and she's back in her 16-year-old body. And, right. and she doesn't try to go beyond that. And I said, look, this is, this is a literary device. That's all it is for you. Don't try to make too much out of it. because. Well, well in fact, I think that that's okay. Uh, mm. I'd much rather have them, I, if they think about it in a hard-headed way. I mean, Octavia Butler, for instance, Kindred, I think is my favorite uh, Butler novel. And, and, she, denied, and you know, she always denied it was science fiction. Well, you know, whether it is or not, I mean, it isn't really science, but I don't, but she treated it in a very hard headed way. Okay. She didn't, she didn't, once she set her premise, she stuck to it in a kind of ruthless way that actually helped the book because there was no easy way out of that situation. And so it it kept turning the screw as it got, got, as it went along to become to almost an intolerable state of tension uh, because she, she couldn't, uh, just uh, you know, have it disappear. Uh, time travel go away, or come up with a uh, you know a Deus Ex Machina ending. Uh, so, so in other words, that, that that kind of thinking, Butler came from the science fiction world as well. You know, she 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 took it seriously. Well, the other thing that uh, I think informs the hard science fiction part of your work is an, another story. Actually, there are two stories in the collection that later led to novels. One is Stories for Men, which. Uh, won the Tiptree Award. Congratulations for that, because that was a rare uh, honor at the time you received it. Um, and it's there, there, there's a lot of interesting things about the story. First of all, the literary reference to Chuck Palahniuk, of all people, uh, in, in, in one of your main characters, uh, the fact that you have this uh, basically women-dominant society uh, on the moon and the third thing is that you really wor- spent a lot of time working out how this moon colony could survive and how it would work and where the oxygen would come from and this sort of thing. And, of course, that shows up again in uh, The Moon and the Other uh, with the, some of yeah. the same characters. Yeah, well, that, that background I worked on very hard. Uh, and, 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 you know, even though the story is mostly about gender issues and, and what you could call it quasi-utopian or what utopian anti-utopian critically uh, utopian is the term yeah yeah. um ambiguous utopia as Gwyn said um that that was what i you know was i guess most interested in i wanted my moon to be the real as real as i could make it and so i spent a lot of time uh working that out and um you know read i actually read a lot of science you know i have a undergraduate degree in physics and i uh, wanted to be an astrophysicist originally so i I know a lot of science. And so, so, uh, um, but, uh, you know, it's not, my story ideas don't come out of science. I, I, I realized, I tried to write hard science fiction at the early in my career and I realized I was no good at it. I, mm. I it didn't inspire me uh, as a source of fiction in and of itself. Uh, but, uh, but given I'm interested in the characters or society or the satirical elements or the literary references, all those other things I like to do. Uh, if it's in a science fiction context, I want to try to make the science fiction as, as possible, as possible as I can. So I'm curious, you mentioned Sycamore Hill earlier. I mean, how did you come to me? You mentioned part of the reason you, you put it together. How did you come to me doing that? And how do you feel being involved in workshops has changed how you write? If it has. Well, I certainly have gotten a lot of, uh, I think being in, in workshops has changed how I write. Um, Sycamore Hill started actually uh, when I lived in Kansas City. I was invited by Ed Bryant out to uh, Milford in Colorado uh, uh, twice. 
And, uh, and I really, it was great. I met uh, people who became my longtime friends, Connie Willis. I met her and, and I met, uh, uh, Ed, you know, Ed Bryant, of course, uh, Dan Simmons, who, well, there, that's sad. I mean, uh, yeah. Dan was, was, a friend, was a friend for a long time, but not anymore. Um, and so, uh, uh, that was great. And I had such a good time and it helped me. I felt like I was in a community then of writers who were like me. Okay. Yeah. I knew some, some people who were aspiring writers before that, but I never felt like I had a, 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 a companions or cohort. Yeah. I, mm. I didn't go to Clarion. I, w- I would have liked to, but I, I never did. And so I didn't have that experience. So uh, when I moved to North Carolina uh, and Ed wasn't doing the Milfords anymore, so I didn't get invited. I thought, well, I want to have that experience here. And so um Mark Van Name and I uh, came up with this idea of doing a uh, workshop, invitation workshop like Milford along those lines here in North Carolina. And we invited writers, almost all of them were from North Carolina. The only two who weren't were James, James Patrick Kelly, Jim Kelly, and uh, Scott Russell Sanders. Oh, actually, in my old college roommate, uh, Steve Carper, who is a CIFWA member, but he came as well. But, but everyone else was uh, in state and it was all, all men. And we did it in Mark's house, so we did this really much on pretty much on the cheap. But it, mm. and it went for only five days. It went it went pretty well, however. And so the next day, year, Mark and I decided to expand it, and we needed to invite some women writers, and and uh, it, and it sort of just grew like that. I I didn't have any in, intention to. Uh, I know people have talked about oh, there was the Sycamore Hill Mafia or the Sycamore Hill program or whatever. You know that we had a ideology that we were yeah. trying to put. I never felt that. I, I, I guess I what it was, I wanted people who were, you know, I guess writing at the literary end of the genre or the, the ambitious, you know, not not strictly just, to, um, just for commercial fiction. Uh, but, um, but you know, it, it sort of grew. It, it got out of hand, really. Uh, and and we started to get a lot of, and, and then I, I got to know more and more writers from, my generation, and, and as I've spoken about them before, I invited most of them to Sycamore Hill at one time or another. So that, that um, you know, that was a real, uh, uh, hearing what people said and seeing what they wrote and having to understand what they wrote and trying to give criticism that was useful and not just bullshit uh, or just, you know, sort of what, trying to enforce my own standards on mm-hmm. their work. Uh that taught me an awful lot. Okay, and, it, and it, I, it strikes me from the way you're describing it, and from what I've read coming out of it, is that you were trying to create a space for for short fiction, short science fiction writers, or short slipstream, or whatever. But also those writers of kind of short mainstream fiction who tended towards science fiction, who never had the visibility or never did get the visibility in the field. The person I'm thinking of, actually, I guess, is the current director of the workshop, Richard Butner. Who Richard, I frankly yeah. never heard of until I saw his collection from Small Beer, and I thought, how come I've never heard of this guy? Because these stories were terrific. They are terrific. Yeah, Richard is a wonderful writer, and I, you know, I I'm so glad that that book came out from Small Beer, and, and that it got and it got you know people who've read it really like it, okay, <laughs> because it deserves it, and he's a really wonderful writer. Um, well, yeah, I, I I did want to invite people of that sort. Jim Morrow was invited to Sycamore Hill. But Richard sort of had a came in the side door in that he was one of my f- students at NC State uh, oh, really? back in the very first graduate writing workshop I ever taught. 
I think it was 1985 or 86, he enrolled in it. He was a computer engineering master's student at NC State. And he, but he was way into science fiction and he uh, heard about it and signed up for my workshop and, and he was prom- very promising. I, I, so I encouraged him. We became friends as a result of that. So, uh, um, well, and Richard is running Sycamore Hill. He's completely run it since 2006, I think. And, and uh, I have no uh, hand in it anymore. And I really like what he's done. He's, he's changed it in a lot of ways. It's a lot more of uh, writers who are borderline. And Richard is, is scrupulous about inviting equal numbers of men and women and uh, uh, people of color and uh, gender uh, uh, range. And so that, to me, uh, has made it a, a different sort of workshop. There's another, uh, another story that becomes a novel in, uh, in the collection is, of course, Pride and Prometheus. And it raises a couple of questions. One is that uh, you, you've had an unusually uh, healthy relationship with feminism going back to the uh, stories from men and, and the Nebula Award. And here you're taking on um, two of the most significant <laughs> women writers in the history of the world um, and, and, and doing something which I assume was deliberate, but if it wasn't, it almost had to be deliberate. Uh, you've got Jane Austen and Mary Shelley. And you've in in the novel at least it seems to me a very deliberate decision to use a narrative voice which is closer to mary shelley because nobody can do jane austen and people who have tried to do jane austen have ended up trying to write a parody of somebody who's wittier than they are in the first place um so first of all it seemed to me that you stayed away from doing jane austen imitation and then you picked the most interesting the most science fictional of the bennett sisters to make your main character (laughs) Well, yeah, it was, uh, you know, my first idea was uh, to have, a, uh, you know, some kind of Jane Austen, Frankenstein mix. Uh, I did not really think about Mary right away. And then I came to realize that she was the person I needed to use uh, as my main character. And in fact, I, I have to say, Mary, I think is my favorite female character I've ever written. I think I, I uh, identify with her and sympathize with her and understand her in a way that, uh, you know, I feel deeply invested in, in Mary. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that was a problem about Jane Austen. You get in the ring with Jane and, you know, you're going to be like Stunny Liston with Muhammad Ali. You're going to be the man. You're going to 10 count. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I, but I did try a little bit of Jane Austen-ish stuff, but then it's it really is a more of a, a gothic than it is a, a, a regency. Uh, so, um, um, because, you know, I, I, that, that is a, a, something I think I could handle the idiom of that better. Um, I really um, never intend to write a novel based on it in, until actually Karen Fowler, after she read the story, told me she read it at Sycamore Hill. She said, this should be a novel. And I said, I don't think I've got a novel's worth of story here. And so I sold it as a, a novella. And then uh, several years later, I realized, that, well, no, what I've got here is sort of the middle of a, what could be a longer story. And, and uh, I really enjoyed writing that novel. I, I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. Uh, and I think it came out. I mean, I, it's, it's probably unseemly for a writer to talk about how much they like the work. But I, I like that book. Okay, <laughs> it, it, What kind of response did you get? I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting that that Karen Fowler encouraged you to do this after her own bestseller, the Jane Austen Book Club. But did you get a response from the kind of Jane Austen community at all? 
it's funny. I, I, I have been to two different Jane Austen, uh, the JASNA, the Jane Austen Society of North America has conferences every year. And I've been to two of their conferences and I, uh, I enjoyed them a great deal. I, and, and basically it's a, you're in a room with 70 women and me. Okay. And, <laughs> and so uh, that, that, that was interesting. And, and uh, you know, they love Jane Austen and some of them are scholarly and a lot of them aren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but they, they generally accepted my book huh. pretty well, but I did find out and it was quite surprising to me that there are a lot of Jane Austen readers who didn't really, it's funny. I think they started all right with my book, but when they got to the ending, they were very unhappy. Uh, <laughs> if you go on Goodreads uh, and look at the comments there, uh, there are a lot of Austin people who feel that I misunderstand Jane Austen because I didn't give them the HEA. I didn't yeah. know what an HEA was. Okay, uh-huh. you know what? What's an HEA? I don't know. I don't know. I literally don't know. You, you need to go to Jasna. Okay. HEA means happily ever after. Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, and, and any Jane Austen pastiche has to have an HEA. And I didn't know that. Okay. And so uh, that, that put me, um, you know, out of sync with some readers. Okay. I didn't read it as anything like a Jane Austen pastiche. I read it as kind of a Mary Shelley pastiche with Jane Austen characters in it. Well, I think that I think that one thing is I think the book was marketed well, it was marketed with kind of a gothic cover, so you'd think people wouldn't I think what happened is people picking it up who came from the Jane Austen world, uh, you know, it, it, it starts with Mary Bennett and it has all the characters from Pride and Pre- Pride and Prejudice. And so they uh, they really I think got thinking it was gonna be a Jane Austen ish book. Yeah, yeah. And then then when it turns out it's Frankenstein, uh, and the plot is basically Frankenstein. Yeah. Uh, then, uh, then I think they were unhappy with that. Some of them, not all of them. And so people came from the science, the science fiction side, from the Frankenstein side, have not had that trouble. I've not yeah. had telling me that you know I really couldn't do uh, Mary Shelley, you know, uh, justice. I, I mostly they say I, I did all right with that. You know, and some of them are very happy that I illuminate the character of Victor in a way that perhaps he isn't illuminated in the book, uh, the original. I mean. mm. Well, that kind of brings us go. to the title. Um, Jonathan, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, 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 no. Go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. Gonna, it, it brings us toward the title story, the uh, the novella, The Dark Ride, which is uh, a it's, it's, it's a lot of influences. I mean, there's a little bit, there's, there's another story in there, a beautiful story about your father and H.G. Wells uh, in Buffalo, New York. And this also involves Buffalo, New York, because it involves the assassination of McKinley by a guy whose name I never knew how to pronounce. Is it Leon Cholgos or something like that? Cholgos. Cholgos. Oh, okay. Go ahead. could. I guess you could say C-H-O-L-G-O-S-H. Cholgos. Okay, yeah. People are thinking you're saying Cthulhu, but that's okay. He was the actual assassin, but this involves... Uh, Emma Goldman, it involves H.G. Wells, it involves an actual, there actually were dark rides in amusement parks even in the 19th century. Can you explain what they were? Yeah, uh, this actually was one of the first uh, real serious dark rides. It was a a thing called a trip to the moon. It was an attraction at this uh, World's Fair called the Pan American Exposition, which was taking place in Buffalo, New York in 1901. 
And this attraction was they had a midway and it was a trip to the moon. And so you bought a ticket uh, and you were ushered into a auditorium and uh, you're told that you're going to, we're going to take a trip to the moon. You, you need to make sure you, you know, hold on to your hats and don't look over, don't fall off the spacecraft. And then you are led into this, this large spacecraft with, with uh, sort of kind of an ornithopter. Uh, and it, it takes off. They had special effects to make it seem like you were really flying a thunderstorm with rain coming down. And then you land on the moon and go underground into tunnels and meet the Selenites and the king of the moon. And so this is sort of like a Disney uh, ride, really. It had a, a lot of uh, effort to make it, a, uh, you know, it wasn't really completely convincing, but it was it was a much more elaborate than any kind of uh, ride. It took you, I guess, at least half an hour, I think closer to an hour to go through this whole thing. And tickets were were pretty expensive. So uh, so I, I, I knew that that was happening there. And I, I knew also all about the assassination because I grew up in Buffalo. And, um, you know, the, the History Museum in Buffalo has the gun that was shot, used to shoot Kinley. And this was also a world a World's Fair in Buffalo, New York. Uh, that we're talking right, about. right, and you know it had Nikola Tesla did the uh, lighting. Um, so, so I just uh, uh, thought, well, what would happen if uh, if uh, I thought maybe the president goes to the moon because there were reports that the president, uh, President McKinley, went on this ride the day before he got shot. Although I couldn't find any confirmation of that, so I didn't put it in there. But um, but I could easily have Leon go there. Uh, and so I, I thought, well, you know, and it actually took me a long, long time to write this story because finding the right form for it was very difficult. Uh, and you can see, I think, in it that there's a lot of things going on in, in it. But when I realized that the, uh, the ride, the dark ride, the trip to the moon ride was based to some degree on H.G. Wells's novel, First Men in the Moon, underground selenites and uh i thought oh well that that you know and wells being a socialist and Sholgesh being a socialist and anarchist uh, all these things seem to to fit together you know and um the uh, uh imperialism of that time and and uh all this this really seemed to uh be a way of talking about a lot of real fundamental american issues uh and so so i i just immersed myself in, uh, I knew I was going to follow the events of the real assassination fairly closely, but this, what was going to happen on the moon, I, I thought, oh, that, that will, I'll make that into a, uh, what, a scientific romance like Wells' novel and have extreme uh, events occur, unre- un- unlikely events, uh, have a, a romance. The whole tone of the thing will be different from the other side of the story. Uh, it was really interesting to me to get into that. I'm, I'm fascinated by history. And, you know, I made me think a lot about how do I feel about, uh, I mean, I'm not in favor of assassinations. Okay. I, I don't Mm-mm. think, that, but then the more I learned about Leon Shulgash, the more, I mean, his life was very difficult as were the lives of the vast majority of immigrants who came to the United States in the late 1800s and worked in factories. Mm-hmm. You know, he shows up like, as a character in that Stephen Sondheim musical as well, I think. Uh, yes, Assassins. Uh, uh, Assassins. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, and having come from a Polish working class family, my father was from Poland. I uh, And he was born in 1904, right after that. So he, 
it, it made me think a lot about things that I I saw. No one in my family uh, went to college. I was the first person among not just my immediate family, but my cousins and aunts and uncles. Nobody. And so it was really a completely working class culture I grew up in, an immigrant culture, first generation. My parents were both first generation. So that got me thinking about that way of life, which I am so far from now. If you uh, grew up in Buffalo, how did you end up at Kansas? I went there because James Gunn was there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to go to a science fiction writer, and he was about it. You know, It was it, yeah. I'm curious, you spend months going through assembling The Dark Ride, the best short stories of John Kessel, working out what to include, what to exclude, revisiting the writer you were in the 80s and the 90s. Now that the book is complete, how has it made you th think about the work you're doing now and what you're going to do next? Hmm. Well, that's a very good question. Um, I think that what it, if, if, if anything comes from the book, it's that I can do whatever I want. <laughs> feel empowered to write whatever I feel like writing. And now I may not be able to place it. Okay. Uh, that could be difficult, but I, I am at the stage now where I, I sort of don't care. <laughs> I, I just want to do what, what I find interesting. And it seems to me that's always stood me in good stead in my whole career that, that I tended to do what I was interested in and not what the market demanded of me. I certainly, I wasn't ignorant of the market and I didn't ignore it completely, but I, you know, I tried to m make it serve me <laughs> as much as I could. And so now what I want to write is kind of, I don't know that I have anything astonishingly different to write now than what I've written up till now, but, hmm. but I don't feel, yeah, go ahead. No, before before we leave, we should mention the fact that you're actually married to another novelist, Teresa Ann Fowler, who also is interested in history. And it's what people in the genre used to call a mixed marriage, I guess, a mainstream writer yeah. and, and, and the science fiction writer. But And, and her reputation, well, what's her new novel, by the way? We should give it a plug. Her new novel is called, uh, it all comes down to this, and it's a contemporary, I guess you'd call it a dramedy. Uh, okay. It's a lot of serious stuff. Actually, the original title was was The Deceptions. And it's about a family uh, where everyone has got a secret. Uh, and it all comes out in the course of the novel. And it has a happy ending. Uh, but it, it's, uh, it's interesting. But she has written uh, you know, uh, uh, two historicals that were quite successful. Uh, one about Zelda Fitzgerald called Z. And another, uh, a well-behaved woman about Alva Vanderbilt in, in, in the Gilded Age. In fact, uh, she was sort of, Therese had an option to make a TV show out of it. And uh, when What's-His-Name from Downton Abbey uh, came up with his show. Oh, Julian Fellows. Uh, yeah. Fellows. He's like the 800-pound gorilla. And as soon as it was announced that they were going to do a show called The Gilded Age, then Therese's option i mean they basically they never got it but but z, but z was a miniseries was a limited yes, it was on, on amazon still you can watch that first season. i mean it's one of the kind of conversations you have because she's writing very well researched historical fiction and being meticulous or at least with zelda it's a speculative novel she's speculating at least a little bit about zelda fitzgerald's psyche and is there a point at which you kind of your interests kind of come together you you like to manipulate history by putting a real assassin in H.G. <laughs> Wells's moon, 
And she's concerned about getting the details right of, I don't know, the Biltmore Mansion or whatever. Well, uh, she, uh, you know, I'm also interested. When I was writing uh, The Dark Ride, uh, you know, that's set in 1901. And and, uh, she was, I was started it back when she was uh, writing A Well-Behaved Woman. So we would exchange notes on on things back and forth. She gave me a quote from um, William Vanderbilt that I have in The Dark Ride. uh, And... Uh, actually, she's working right now on a story. I don't know if I should tell you a novel about uh, about uh, Evelyn Nesbitt. You know Evelyn mm-hmm. Nesbitt. Yeah, uh, murdered uh, Harry Thaw, or was, mur- uh, was Harry Thaw murdered? Harry Stanford Thaw murdered the, the architect Stanford White. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's perhaps going to happen uh, uh, as her next book. And so was, she's going back to the historical, in other words. So, yeah, we're both very interested in history and we and we have strong opinions about how to do historical fiction and what you can and can't do or what you should and shouldn't do. Uh, we like to talk about writing at the supper table. That's great. Uh, and it's one of the things I really, you know, they say some a writer should never marry a writer because you're going to be jealous or you're going to somehow have conflicts. Or, we haven't had that at all. It's been a delight. And uh, and it, frankly, you know, she's been tremendously successful uh, financially compared to me. <laughs> and, and I don't I think it's wonderful. Right. One thing which is I, I assume it's a compliment to her when she shows up at ICFA. She's like everybody else at ICFA. Nobody views her as the queen who's moved uptown and she doesn't view anybody as as living right. down here in the slums. It's just all a bunch of people interested in the same thing. She finds the people in the genre, genre writers, uh, fascinating, and, fr- and she's friends with all of them. Is, is you know, true friends just at herself with them, you know. Uh, uh, so, so that, uh, you know, that's that's really fun, and and uh, you know, I I um, I don't know, and also you know, someone understands when you're having a bad day, mm-hmm. you know, you can, t- you don't have to like pretend that it, you know, it wasn't yeah. a bad day or why it was a bad day. So um, that's that's a it's a good thing. Yeah. Well, is there anything <laughs> you're working on that you don't want to tell us about? Uh, well, you know, you mentioned H.G. Wells, and I've got a novelette's worth of fiction written about in a story about a uh, it's a historical set in on the basically on New Year's Eve, eighteen ninety nine, basically the end of eighteen ninety nine, going to the twentieth century. Uh, the uh, American writer uh, uh, Stephen Crane was living in England and uh, renting a, a big manor house in the south of England, which was like a 10 miles from where H.D. Wells was living with his wife and family. And so uh, Wells uh, became friends with Stephen Crane, and they had to, he, Crane threw this huge party, had like 50 guests at this big manor house uh, leading up to New Year's Eve. And, you know, people who he invited, like Henry James lived there, and it was just, it's crazy, okay? It's like it would be a TV series, all right, or a TV show. And so I'm I'm writing a ghost story set there because this mansion is supposed to be haunted. It was built in the in the 1300s, without uh, taking place during the party uh, that's uh, over a, a series of three days. Uh, so that's the, probably the thing I've worked the most on. But it, it's probably like you know the dark ride took me a long time to figure out, and I think this is going to take me a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. The Dark Ride is available from good good book retailers, from Subterranean Press Online and everywhere else, uh, and is a wonderful book. Thank you so much, John, for taking time to take talk to us about it today. Okay. We genuinely appreciate it. 
Thank you for inviting me, and I hope I didn't babble on too long. I, I don't you get me going? It's hard to shut me up. <laughs> I, hope, I hope we can see you at Worldcon this year too. I, I will be at Worldcon, yeah. and uh, I can we go out to dinner? I'd like. Let's that. do that. All right. Good. All right. And until <laughs> until any of you who are listening happen to see us at Worldcon, this has been the Coot Street Podcast. <laughs>